When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogle, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management right here in Tucson and also Mesa. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing great. Always good to be with you and the listeners. That's right. And Thanksgiving is going to be here before you know it. Time flies when you're having fun. The holiday season wow. is upon us, Jeff, and then it's going to be 2024. Can you believe that Thanksgiving's around the corner? Well, it's, I don't know where this year has gone, but it's definitely, you know, pretty much gone. <laughs> I do know that it's near the end because it took me an extra 20 minutes to get to work today. You know, week in, week out, we've got uh, our winter visitors back. That's always a good thing. I see more of my friends and family, the premier family, but I always know that's near the end of the year. Oh, holiday time, got the traffic, but like you said, the leaves are turning color and so are the license plates. So That's right. This is the time of year to be thankful for what we have got, and we're going to be discussing that here in the fourth part of the program today, and that is going to be charitable gifting strategies. But I want to start off with what's going on right now in the market and in the economy. You know, Jeff, I read a lot in the business news about what's going on, and it seems that everybody is really interested in this situation being over with. There are more predictions that it's going to be a soft landing or we're going to get out of this without a recession than I have ever seen before. What is your take on that? Can we realistically get out of this? And are better times just around the corner? And I'm talking about the last part here of 2023, the first part of 2024, in your opinion. Well, you know, I think we might be jumping the gun to think that it's over. I mean, you know, if interest rates are uh, five or five and a half percent, and you know, if, if a company's borrowing money, they're paying six, seven, eight, or 10, let's just say it's 5% just to, for round numbers, you know, compared to 2% money or even 0% money, if you're talking about Fed money from uh, that banks could get and loan out cheap and still make money. Well, now, I mean, Fed rates over 5%. And just because the Fed didn't raise it another quarter, by the way, another quarter of a percent from a percentage standpoint isn't going to make much of a difference at all. You know, a quarter of a percent is minuscule when you're at five. A quarter of a percent over and over again from two to five is a different thing than it is from five and a half or six to another quarter of a percent. So the companies over the last four quarters continue to turn in lower earnings. The prices of the stocks have waned down a little, you know, they've wound down a little bit in the last three months. We've still got kind of a, a downtrend. We've just, you know, recently with the, um, fact that the Fed decided to pause interest rates wasn't like they lowered them back to two or they lowered them to four or three or even lowered them a quarter of a percent. They just says, hey, we're not going to hike, but we're still going to probably hike in the future to curb this uh, inflation. We're just going to give it a pause right now because eh, the market's kind of weak and it looks like uh, unemployment actually ticked up a little bit. And maybe some things in the economy are uh, you know, going towards that recession that ends these cycles. When there is a recession that ends these cycles, it typically ends in a massive sell-off. Who sells off? Well, it's interesting. The smart money, and I mentioned this last week, is smart money meaning institutions. Institutional ownership of equities, stock market, is lower than it's been 
except for a few times in history. It's down in the 40s, in the low 40 percentile, and homeowners, or in other words, personal investors, are owning close to 60% of all the equities. Now, typically, when dumb money or private, the private sector, who doesn't really have all the information to go on, they don't really analyze everything from you know all these analytical tools like the McClellan Oscillator and the Zweig model and the Cape Ratio and the Schiller and all these different things that you know really matter to looking at trends, looking at the health of the economy and the health of the market. Market. And the government isn't printing money. When the government's printing money and there's this excess earnings, it's easy for the market to go up, even if it's overvalued. But when they're not printing money, they're actually taking money out of the market. They're charging three or four or five times as high of interest rates to borrow money to corporations and even individuals than they used to, banks do. And even the government does, actually, when you think about uh, you know Fed funds rate to uh, prop up banks. The economy is still sketchy. I think the market is defying gravity a little bit and it can't do it forever. The markets, and I've heard this you know, several times in the last few decades during weird times when the market's irrational. You know, the market can be irrational and it can even stay irrational probably longer than you can stay liquid <laughs> or in a financially sound place. The markets can be irrational for a while. They are irrational. I think even with this Fed rate pause, it gave something to cheer about because everybody wants the market go up. I mean, I'm impatient too. I've, I've been waiting for this thing to turn around. I want it to be done. But there's uh, certain things that have not played out, things that historically take about you know 12 to 24 months to play out. And we're kind of in that 16 to 18 month range where we still have about six months to have these cycles play out if, they're gonna, if history's gonna repeat. And I shared, I think, six or eight different statistics that end in recession. Everything from, you know, like I just mentioned, the stock ownership by private sector, really out of whack. Price earnings ratios over 30 or in that 30, we're paying $30 for $1 of earnings when the typical norm is around 16 or 17. That equilibrium has always returned to that level, which means, you know, the S&P would have to be down somewhere around the 2400 mark. And, you know, the Dow, what, 18, 19,000 or something. If it returns all the way to where we consider fair value, then we still have some downward pressure or some history that shows that we're getting in there. We have the um, yield curve inversion where short-term yield rates are, are still higher. We have all that helicopter money running out. We have just a number of things. We have the Buffett trend where GDP and the Wilshire 2000, the ratio of the total value of the stock market being way higher than the GDP is, even though the GDP grew at like four and a half percent, which was a really high number compared to what we've had lately. You know, some of that's probably eaten up by inflation, which isn't really adjusted correctly, in my opinion, on the uh, GDP numbers. The GDP numbers just, hey, look, uh, we're spending more money. We have more money going. We are buying more products and services. But we just got, you know, more information uh, just uh, this last week that, you know, our trade deficit is still bad. In other words, we're not bringing manufacturing home. We're not helping the local businesses. We're still, you know, trading money around the world and trying to, you know, get deals. And somehow our GDP is growing, but there's not a lot of that underlying support with fundamentals, fundamentals that have typically been relatively strong, or at least the majority of them relatively strong, while, you know, this new modern monetary theory of just printing money at will has been going into the market and growing the market, creating wealth, creating better times, low interest rates, create, you know, opportunities for entrepreneurs and, you know, big companies and small companies alike. So the economy actually did have a chance to grow at a pretty good clip, you know, that six or seven 
common range for GDP is probably indicative of a more healthy economy. We're not there yet. But just because the Fed did not raise interest rate doesn't mean all of a sudden companies are going to start making money. They're still paying five times the amount of interest that they used to pay on loans than they did five years ago or three years ago or two years ago. So I still think there's pressure on earnings. Uh, The inflation hasn't gone back down. Just because they stopped interest rates doesn't mean we're not still paying 20 or 30% more for gas and food than we were two or three years ago. Doesn't mean that uh, housing prices are any more affordable. You know, they claim that, you know, Bidenomics, which is uh, restoring the American dream, what, by taking tax money and just handing it out to people that don't want to work? Is the American dream really getting the government to give you money, and they call it an investment in America? They just give you money so you can spend it, which makes you uh, you know less productive because you have no incentive to work than the people that are working and trying to build a business because they're living the old American dream where you actually got rewarded for the efforts that you put in and the risks that you took and more based on free market forces, you know, actually was the American dream, not, oh, let's be Robin Hood, take from the rich, give to the poor. Isn't this American dream? We're restoring Bidenomics. I mean, that doesn't work. So there's a lot of things about Bidenomics that is not healthy to the economy or even the market other than, you know, if they start printing money again or say, oh, there's another pandemic, you have to stay at home and we're going to give out trillions and trillions of dollars. And since you're not doing anything with that money, you just throw it in the market and make it go up. So, I mean, the stock market is not always an indicator of economy. The stock market, I think, is very susceptible to cheerleading, especially when 60% of the stocks are close to that. And it's in the high 50s is owned by the private sector that is very susceptible to cheerleading, whereas smart money, the institutions are not. They have actual information. They have actual statistics. You can pick one statistic out of 20 and say, oh, this statistic says, oh, when the market goes up four or 5% in a week, that's always followed by a year where we make 20%. And that statistic uh, did did come out. I think uh, you sent me an article and we can talk about that later. But the fact is, is there are these anomaly statistics that, you know, have maybe worked in history. And when there's five or six of them all working in the same direction, like all the recession indicators that they were still going to have one, I kind of lean toward the numbers, not just one that says, oh, the market bounced. Why the, Why did the market bounce? Did the economy really get better? Did interest rates go down? No. Did inflation go down? No. Are companies actually making more money? No. Did the inflation rate go down for consumers? Do consumers actually making that much more money to offset the uh, cost of goods that they're buying, the consumer cost of living? I don't think those things are fixed. I think there's just a lot of hype and there's a lot of cheerleading. And if it were really, if, if, if institutions or the economic, the people in the know, smart money, if they thought that it was going to be a soft landing or it wasn't still possible or probable that we're going to have a little bit more weakness ahead, then why aren't they owning 60% of all the equities? Why have they been selling to us in the last year or two? Even during the AI hype, they were just hyping it and they're divesting of AI stocks to the private sector. So if it was really that good, why aren't they buying? Well, you know, they've been buying AI stocks for the last five or 10 years. We've known this was coming. It was not a new thing. It just happened to be the word of the day or the theme of the day during the beginning of the year. So all of a sudden now we have this AI thing at some new, the next dot-com phenomenon, but it's already been around. I mean, the future hasn't really changed. It's just all of a sudden there's hype and cheerleading about it and people have a reason to buy stocks and get positive and, you know, have, have something to look forward to. And I get it. You know, we want to be optimistic. We want to see the glass half full, not half empty. And I don't see the glass half empty it's, it's half full, but there's, you know, some pressures on it to keep it from filling up anymore right now. You know, what's really good, though, is at least fixed interest. 
guarantees are around 5% or better. So, I mean, you can make 5 or 6% on your safe money and you don't have to risk and you still make a decent rate of return. Sure, it may not be keeping up with the old inflation rates the last couple of years, but it's, uh, you know, beating current inflation rates, a more healthy returns on savings where we don't have to really worry about, you know, whether we're going to have a hard landing or a soft landing or if this cycle completes or it doesn't. We can still make money anyway while we see what happens. But I tend to favor smart money. I tend to favor statistics when the majority of them still say that there's going to be some sort of a recessionary period ahead of us. And there might be this little uh, kind of a, a little flyer here, a tweet out here and there that says, oh, well, look at this stat. This might be something to look at. And it might be. But I don't think one good week reverses a trend. In fact, if you look at the market the last uh, few months as it's been trending down, we just barely got back to the trend line last week on the upper side of the range. So We've been creating lower lows and lower highs three or four times over the last three or four months. And the trend, if you create a channel where you draw a line across all the tops and you draw a line across all the bottoms and you look at how this line plays out, you'll see that the trend is still down. And if we are going to break the trend, and it's going to flip back up. The only way we know that is if there's confirmation on the upside. So if the confirmation is on the upside, it just barely broke through with this little rally, but it could have been a little bit overdone. As you mentioned, we went from oversold to overbought in a week, right. which is typically you know marking the bottom of a situation. Well, there was a bottom in August. There was a bottom at the end of September that bounced, and then October got bad, and then November started off good again. This bounce was a little bit bigger than the last three bounces. One in July, right before it peaked out at the end of July. Then August was kind of a bad month. It bounced right at the end of the month. It was still ended up a bad month, but the trend was down. Then it bottomed out in September, bounced a little in October, bottomed out at the end of October, bounced a little in November. And, you know, are we going to continue up? If we do, we're going to continue up for a while. There'll probably be a little bit of, it, since it's overbought, there's going to be some selling profit taking from this recent run-up and the market's going to get soft. And if it goes down and it tests that upper end of the range and bounces off that and stays up, you know, maybe we've got an uptrend. Maybe, you know, maybe we are going to kind of weather this storm and maybe somehow 5% interest is not going to be as devastating borrowing rate as it was last week. For some reason it was last quarter, but it won't be in the future. I don't know how that plays out, but it doesn't make sense to me. But if that does and the market gets healthy, then okay, maybe we won't have a full-blown hard landing recession. Maybe we'll have a soft landing. Maybe we won't have one at all. The fact is, is the odds say we will. And I'd rather go with those odds, especially when we're trying to protect assets for retirees, people that have already saved their money. If you're 30, it's one thing. I don't care you know, what the market's doing. If you're 30 or 40 and you have 10 or 20 years or more to uh, get ready for retirement, keep dollar cost averaging in. If it goes down, you buy low. If it goes up, you're still buying in the uptrend and you're still accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. Dollar cost average is the best way. But if you're 60, you can't afford to lose you know, another 20 or 30% of your money. If we do have the markets reverse and sell off like history shows they should, then you shouldn't be doing that. You should be getting 5% guaranteed on your risk money until the market looks healthy enough to get back in, or maybe even until after the election. Usually the markets get good after the election, no matter who wins. Maybe we just kind of ride this out, make 5% next year. And you know what? If we're wrong, we have a bunch of money in index products. We have LERPs and index annuities that will go up when the markets are healthy. So if the market really is healthy, then we'll make money on our safe stuff. If it's not healthy, then we're not going to lose money on our risk stuff. We're still making money on our uh, risk money too. So we're in a win-win position given you know all the 
noise out there. I know we all want to jump back in the market. We all want to get that upside. But, you know, I, I think it needs to prove itself out because, you know, since July, we have been in a downtrend. We still are in that downtrend just because we have a good week or a good day or some news on the TV that, by the way, TV people are paid advertisers for market makers who want to sell you stock at overblown prices. I don't know if anybody knows that, but uh, newsflash, there, there you go. So again, we have to look at the whole market. We have to look at the whole picture. We can't just take one stat and call it, you know, one good reason to buy when all the other reasons say, eh, hold tight for a while. We're talking with Jeff Bogan here of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management in Tucson and Mesa. We've been talking about the market and current events. And Jeff, before we continue, I want to take a moment to remind our listeners how they can have a conversation with you to ask their questions about how the current economy, the current market will affect them and their journey towards retirement. If you need answers, then request your no-cost, no-obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap by calling 520-780-9059. When you call, Shelly will take some information from you and set you up with an appointment with Jeff and put you on a path towards a successful retirement. Again, there is no cost. There's no obligation for this whatsoever. We're offering it this weekend, of course, to our loyal listeners. Absolutely complimentary. 520-780-9059. Take advantage of this opportunity to sit down with Jeff and get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement. Again, it's not going to cost you a dime. 520-780-9059. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, every week we talk about a case of the week, this week being no different. So what was your case of the week this past week? You know, I'm, I'm going to talk about some things that I see on a regular basis. There's a lot of people that are you know, not real happy with, you know, everything that's in the market. And there's some products and things like that that may have been bought for the right reasons a few years ago that aren't working as well as some things that you can get into nowadays. And I'm going to uh, start off with, you know, I've had several clients just or prospective clients come in and they've already got a portfolio. Some of them are not very happy that, you know, they're stuck in these things like REITs, real estate investment trusts or unit investment trusts, and they don't understand how they work and they're not traded and they can't move them. And let me just say, there's there's a lot of broker dealers out there that put you in stuff that like might pay a commission and lock your money up. And that typically really does lock your money up. Some things you can upgrade, some things you can't. Sometimes these REITs, uh, sometimes these uh, brokered CDs that are considered CDs, but somehow you know, are tied to certain indexes. You can't pull any money out, you know, until they mature, you have to find a secondary market if you want to sell. That's like REIT, CDs, and some of these uh, brokered products, which, you know, aren't really liquid. One of the things that I think brokerage, if you've got uh, money in the market or money at risk, I mean, it seems to me that those items ought to be a little bit more fluid or liquid than things that you do for the long term, like the annuities and LERPs and things that are contracted that you have limited access, but some access and so some sort of a contract, but you have principal protection. There's so many things out there through the brokerage industry that don't give you principal protection and they still tie your money up and make it really hard for you to move and do some things uh, with. So be careful. You might want to just kind of review what you have and you know how stuck you are in the portfolios that maybe you got put into years ago when you thought, you know, when you said, oh, I just don't want to lose money, I'm going to get retired soon. And they stick in a bunch of REITs, real estate investment trusts, where, you know, when the market goes up, real estate goes up. But here's what the companies do. They take your money. They say, okay, we're going to raise a billion dollars, going to buy a bunch of real estate. And in uh, five or 10 years, we're going to hopefully have $2 billion worth of real estate. Meantime, we're going to pay everybody 7% return 
on their money, but it's really of their money because it's kind of actually set up kind of like a Ponzi scheme. The executives that uh, develop these plans typically get paid really nice salaries and they have a nice team of investors and stuff. They get paid well and they might raise a billion dollars. But while they're raising that billion dollars over the next three to five years, they're buying some properties that hopefully will be appreciating and maybe, maybe not. But they're also paying 7% interest to all the prior investors. So they're actually they're actually utilizing infusion of new capital to pay interest. Then they buy the real estate and between the salaries and stuff, maybe they only buy seven, what was $700 million in real estate for that billion dollars and hope it's worth a billion dollars. Well, it may or may not be. So what happens is they say, well, we're not really at a billion dollars. We can't really sell this thing out or make it go public or tradable. So we're just going to ride this thing out for five more years and hope the recession doesn't make a property soft. Otherwise, we're going to take big salaries. And then when they finally get to the point where they want to make it public, they have this big conversion fee where they might take several million dollars, maybe even a hundred million dollars off the top and split it up between all the uh, original investors who started the deal and the other investors, you know, get paid 7% along the way, but then they find out that their investment's only worth 30 or 40% of what they put in. And they wonder what happened, you know, and I've seen this happen over and over again on new REITs. Now the tradable REITs have already received kind of a market value. So if you're going to get into REITs, get into tradable REITs. But I see so many people that are not into tradable REITs and they get into trouble. CDs, same thing. You've got to kind of ride those out. If you try to sell them early, you're going to take a big loss. Now, here's something that I could show you that you don't have to take a big loss that you can upgrade that I see a lot. And that is uh, some of the annuities and LERPs type products that were purchased in the last, say, three to five years, maybe maybe a little longer. But even new products that aren't that old, the insurance companies that offered them were only going to make about 2% on your money. And they're trying to leverage that money using index options or options on index and things like that in order to boost your profits up to maybe five or six percent when, you know, in a CD or other safe money, you can only get two. Well, that seemed like a pretty good deal a few years ago. Well, here's the deal now. Insurance companies can make six percent or five and a half, six percent on your money right now and lock it in in a laddered bond index for basically the rest of your life. If they can make five percent on your money, if they used to be able to make 5 or 6% on your money when they only made 2 what do you think they can do if they're making 5% on your money? They can still take their little 1% um, you know, override that they need for their expenses or whatever, but now they can invest double or triple what they used to be able to invest in. So, insur- so new annuities are a lot better than older annuities, and so are LERPs in a much better, more solid uh, place right now. So how do you get out of those old annuities? Well, there's, uh, unfortunately, most annuities are, you know, 7, 10, maybe even 12 or 15 year contracts because you want to allow that company to take that 2 or 3% or whatever they're making on your money for the longest period of time and be able to invest it. And the longer the contract, the more time the insurance company has to use your money, make a little bit of money, but they also have the ability to pay you more. So a lot of people took these long contracts. Maybe they have a 10% penalty just getting out. Well, a lot of companies have stepped up and they're actually front loading annuities with bonuses. These are vested bonuses, not fake bonuses that only apply to income and are really kind of phantom money, but they're actual real bonuses that go into your account day one. So some companies are offering 15, even 20% bonuses that will buy you out of, say, a 10 or 12% penalty, even if the annuity is only three years old. Well, consider this. You know, client buys annuity three years uh, ago. It has a uh, 10% surrender charge. It's in its third year. It's a 10-year contract. And they're just not happy because, you know, they've, the fixed account's only paying 1.5% because the company's only making two and they're keeping, keeping a half for their bills. And yeah, that's okay. And they've got a minimum interest rate guarantee of like 025 so you'll probably ne- never make in the fixed account, probably never make more than two. And in the caps, the, the indexes, maybe you make five or six max. Well, the new companies can pay seven to 
on indexes, some of them, one of them that I'm thinking of just right off the top of my head, a rated company, been around a while, a long time, and they're paying a minimum fixed account never to go below 3%. They'll give you a 14% bonus right up front. And they have caps of between 7 and 10%. They have some that are uncapped where you can get half or better returns of the market indexes when they go up. So you can basically make double or triple the money that you used to be able to make, even going forward with a company that is making 5 or 6% on your money. We'll guarantee at least three something, but on a 10-year contract, that will front you more than 10% up front. That's because these companies, some companies have really deep pockets and a lot of reserves. They have money that they could actually buy business with. That's essentially what they're doing. But consider you're not stuck into an annuity that you hate. You might be able to move. You might be able to upgrade. And we've been doing that with a lot of clients that have come in from outside. We've even been doing that for some of our own clients. There is a time that if the math proves out that you you will be better off as soon as you move the money and you will never be as bad off as either worst case scenario and likely better going forward, then it makes sense to upgrade. So don't just feel like because you did certain things, you're stuck. Now, some things, maybe you're a little bit more stuck than others. Some things you might have to wait till things mature next year, year after, five years from now to end up moving. But if you already have some things that are, that you can actually move and get out of, or if the annuity does pay, you know, a five or 6% money penalty off on early out on an index related CD that you lose five or 10% on, but you know, you have very likely no upside, then maybe you look at upgrades. So that's kind of the, the case of the week is don't be afraid to upgrade some of these products that uh, you thought you bought for the long term that have contract, you know, you have to weigh the weigh the odds and with the new interest rate environment that we're in, you just have to do the math and see if some of the new products will actually upgrade your potential earnings and your immediate account values right out of the gate. We're talking with Jeff Bogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. We've been talking about the case of the week. If you're interested in getting in and sitting down with Jeff, talking about your individual situation, again, no cost, no obligation for this Premier Retirement Roadmap. You can get it by calling 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. When we come back, we've got listener questions and more when our show continues here on 790 KNST, Tucson most stimulating talk. Want more talk about sustaining your wealth and thriving in a retirement that could last 30 plus years? Stay tuned for more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan after this. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan and Jeff Shea. Thank you so much for joining us here every week for Premier Retirement on 790 KNST Tucson's most stimulating talk. Remember, if you miss any part of the program again, you want to hear it all over again. We're also a podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast. You'll find this show and all of our past shows so you can stay on top of your wealth and how to grow it. In this section, Jeff, we're going to do listener questions. We're going to kick it off this week with Greg, who's listening to us in Green Valley. And Greg says, I was forced into retirement two years ago. I'm 64. My my wife is 60. My wife doesn't work outside the home. We own our home worth about a million bucks and have no recurring debt. 
We have money saved to live off for about three years. My total income from savings and investments was $25,000 last year. We have $1.3 million in an IRA and about $120,000 in a Roth IRA. I have two questions for you. Should I wait to take Social Security? Should be close to the top amount and just live off the IRAs after savings run out? And does it make financial sense to do a massive rollover of the IRA to a Roth IRA and pay the taxes now when my income is low? I had a guy run the numbers and and it appears to be mostly a wash. Is this really true? Huh, there's a lot to bite off here. Uh, first of all, I don't know what your lifestyle is and how much you have in savings that will last you for about three years, but let's just say for the sake of argument that you know, you're 64, wife is 60, obviously she has to wait a couple of years for social security. Do you want to take it early? You say you have enough saved. I would assume that just means uh, savings stuck in the bank that you can just live off making $25,000 from savings and investments. Last year, that's pretty good when most people have lost money. If you're talking about uh, just interest, then obviously you've got probably half a million dollars and that that means you're living on 170 a year. That 1.3 million is not going to cut it if that's the case. However, you know, if you just did some investing and got a little bit lucky or you had some high interest on, uh, let's say a couple hundred thousand dollars and maybe your lifestyle is 75 or 80, that might be maybe more in line with what I'm assuming these numbers are. But let's just tackle these other questions. You have a million dollars in your home. I don't know if you have children or if you want to age in place and I'm not sure that there's a mortgage or not on it. I'm assuming there isn't. That's a million in assets that you've saved that you could use later. You could either do that through a reverse mortgage. You could do that through evil equity lines of credit. You could do that through downsizing by a half a million dollar home that 20 years from now, maybe it's worth, you know, $2 million. You know, that's very reasonable at three or 4% appreciation on uh, real estate. And maybe at that point, when you're in your eighties, you want to go move into a place like, you know, some sort of not of assisted living. We don't want to call that just a, a retirement community, which gives you all the uh, amenities that you don't have to mow your own grass and clean your own yard and cook your own meals and that kind of a thing. Maybe that's, uh, you know, what you want to do with your house money eventually, or let that be your ace in the hole for, you know, long-term care. Now this 1.3 million in an IRA and 120 in a Roth, you know, I mean, you're pushing one and a half million dollars right there. If you leave it in the market, you know, according to the 4% rule and what Wall Street kind of assumes is the right amount, about a 4% rate of return should be achievable there. That would be about 60,000 a year. Give yourself a little about a 2% increase for inflation and you shouldn't run out. I say you shouldn't run out of money by the time you're 90. But that is also, you know, in not taking into consideration, I mean, the reason that you can only take 4% out of the market when it averages 10 and bond market averages, you know, three to five or six, and you can only take four out, that's pretty counterintuitive, but that's because it has to take into account inflation. You could, instead of saying, okay, I can start with a retirement plan of about 60,000 a year and give myself a little cost of living adjustment. Maybe I don't have to take social security. And maybe you don't want to take social security for maybe a couple of years. Maybe you want to do a Roth conversion or a LERP conversion, life insurance retirement plan. I mean, you're still pretty young, your wife and uh, you are both in your early 60s, so you might want to do what I consider even a, a more sound tax plan and an income plan where you can get tax-free income by moving that money, let's say over the next eight or nine years or 10 years. I mean, I assume if you're in a lower tax bracket, if you move a million dollars from an IRA into Roths and let, let's just back up a little bit. Let's just say you used uh, 300,000 plus you went on social security fairly soon, plus your savings and, and lived seven years. And over the next seven years, you moved $100,000 a year from that IRA into a LERP 
and uh, another 300 into the Roth. So you get the whole million dollars out. Maybe you live on a little bit, but let's just say you, you did that. So you pay tax on about $150,000 a year, which means you are in the 25% tax bracket or lower while you're converting it. Now, if you just did the lump sum 1.3 million, yeah, you're in a 40% plus combined tax bracket when you add state and federal. That's not gonna play out smart if you're gonna pay tax at 40% on the Roth conversion, yet when you're retired, you're only going to be at worst case in a 25% tax bracket. Why would you not try to move as much as you can now while the tax rate up to $150,000, $160,000 taxable is only 22% and 24% up to $300,000 taxable? In my opinion, over the next three years, you'd want to probably move two hundred dollars or $300,000 in taxes out, pay 24% and 22% on most of that, either move it to a Roth and then do a LERP conversion with the rest. You know, even while you're taking Social Security, you'll still only pay Social Security no matter what. I think with this income in your lifestyle, you're going to be taxed at the 25% bracket. You're going to be paying tax on 85% of your Social Security no matter what. What you don't want to do is be doing big conversions after you're 65 and on Medicare, which means, you know, a year or two, you're going to be on Medicare. And if you have taxable income over about $170,000, $180,000, then you and your wife get to pay double for Medicare premiums. So we can do a tax plan where not only do you not get surcharged for those other hits that nobody tells you about, but also keep yourself in a 25% or lower tax bracket. In that case, moving the money out at 25% or 22% now, paying tax on less money is smarter than paying tax on more money later or paying a higher tax rate. It would not surprise me if what is now going to be the 25% tax bracket when the Trump tax cuts go away in three years, you know, goes to 26 or 28. It wouldn't surprise me if the 28 goes to 30 and the what's, you know, 36 or 37 goes to 39, not only 39, maybe 40, 44 or 45, maybe even a 50% tax bracket for the super wealthy, those people making over four or $500,000, which is, I don't think super wealthy in any sense of the word. But bottom line is you've got a potential tax problem if you sit on that money, spend all your savings, take Social Security and kick the tax can down the road. The market, which has been kind of soft the last couple of years, and you have 1.3 million, what if it's worth 2.6 million when you're 73 and you have to take $100,000 or more out to start with on your IRAs, whether you need it or not, and that amount goes up every year. Pretty soon you're in the 28 bracket, then the 30 bracket, then the 35 bracket, and you're 80 or 90 years old and you have to take three or $400,000 out of those investments and maybe paying through the nose in taxes and getting surcharged for social security and everything else you can think of. So my opinion is, is a great time to start. The fact that you're out of work is not a big deal. It seems like you have enough savings probably to get by in a reasonable level, what I would consider a reasonable Arizona lifestyle that most people can seem to live. But to back up, instead of taking $60,000 a year out of your savings and investments, which is kind of the 4% rule, I could see something in the neighborhood of eighty to 100000 easily being a guaranteed rate of return and then still having maybe three or four or $500,000 in assets that you can continue to invest and try to hit some home runs with along the way in the market. So, you know, eighty or $100,000 plus your Social Security, you know, 10000 or more spendable per month, if that can do it for you, I think it's easy to make a plan that works. And that's not touching your home. If you wanted to touch the home, maybe you could live on one hundred fifty dollars to $180,000 if you really want to. But again, it depends on whether or not you want to spend down your assets and just die 
not penniless, but you know, die with less than you have now, or if you want to continue to grow the estate because you want to make a bunch of kids and grandkids rich. So again, there's a lot of things to this question that I would have to uh, cover. That's why we usually spend an hour to an hour and a half in a first meeting getting to know each other, find out your goals, find out about your family, find out about your tax situation, find out what you really can live on, find out what you want to live on. Can we uh, give you a, I want this lifestyle instead of, well, I should probably be prudent and because of market risk, I should only do this much. I talked last week about a, a guy that came in and he went to the typical broker that did an analysis on the based on the 4% rule. And they're going to start out with 60,000 per year less income from my plan, which has you know guaranteed income associated with them, very predictable outcomes. And the caveat is when he's 95, the other plan gives him 60,000 more per year to live on. He goes, well, what am I going to be doing at 95 where I'm going to need $320,000 a year? Seems to me 250 should cut it back up then when I'd rather live on 150 now instead of 80 now or 90 now. So again, you, you know, look at your lifestyle. When do you want to spend your money? When do you want to have it available? Do you want to front end load it a little bit and have some guarantees? Or do you want to just leave it in the hold and hope method that Wall Street tells you is the right thing to do, which is only to self-serve them so they can continue making fees and commissions on your money and not remember that it's your money, not their money. Greg, we appreciate you listening to us there in Green Valley. And of course, we will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Jeff, our next question is Joanna and Dove Mountain. And Joanna says, we're setting out a bond fund that incurred a 10% loss in 2022, down $30,000. Is this something that has the chance of recovery or is it going to be a long slog to get back to neutral? Your opinion. Well, first of all, if you're only down 10%, congratulations. I have not seen a bond fund that's only down 10% unless it's a really short-term bond fund, a really short-term bond fund. But most bond funds are down 15 or 16 last year and still another two or three this year, year to date. All the indexes would suggest that you should be down 18 to 20. So good for you for that. Now, if in fact, the Fed is done raising interest rates, and in fact, if we have a soft landing, which I really don't see, and if somehow they start lowering interest rates because somehow inflation gets down and somehow the market corrects and is now at a fair value, and the Fed can see lowering interest rates as being a smart thing to do, as interest rates go down, those losses in bonds will return to the bond market. Now, I think that's probably another three to five years before that would happen. I don't know that you necessarily need to sell those bonds depending on you know how much you have. I mean, obviously, if it's down 30000 then you probably had around $300,000 in a bond fund. I don't know that that's enough money to base your entire retirement plan on. I'm assuming you have other stuff and you're just talking about your bond fund. If you're just talking about your bond fund, some of the things you can do, I mentioned in the last segment, is insurance companies use bonds as their underlying security for your investment, and they could guarantee a certain rate of return for the next 10 years or so. I just saw one a uh, couple of days ago that is 6.15 guaranteed for 10 years. I think that's a pretty strong guarantee and that would make up your 10% loss in the next year and a half just with the first years of interest. I don't know that the bond market is going to get that strong that fast, but I do know that if the Fed lowers interest rates down to 2% again, yeah, you make a little bit of money, maybe 5 or 10% back and maybe 10 or 20% over the next five years plus the coupon rate, which is now lower on the average bond in that fund, which means, yeah, maybe you make three to five over the next 10 years instead of a guaranteed six. With that guaranteed six over 10 years more than overcome that loss, well, heck yeah, it's another 20 or 30% in excess earnings that you could do in either a tax to account or a safe account that wouldn't lose value anymore. So that might be 
Something you want to look at is just kind of an alternative way to play the bond market. If you need that money liquid and you like the bond fund, that's fine. I don't know that there's that much more downside in the bond market. So yeah, I hate to just recommend you just often take a loss unless you just really can't stand the idea that bonds go up and down and you don't want to take a chance anymore and you want to just cut your losses and go into something that's safer. But again, I don't think you've done that bad. I don't think that you want to buy individual bonds because you do lose money just on trading them. I think a bond fund is probably the best way to go. If you know the $300,000 is money you need liquid for incidental expenses, or if it's in an IRA, you're going to have to take money out of it You know, in the future with the RMDs and stuff like that. It's a lot easier because bond funds have liquidity that you can pull out, and the bond traders are typically trying to minimize those big losses from individual bonds. I don't think, based on this limited information that I have, that I make any necessary changes. I think you know, the market will eventually come back. But even though the market has lost 10%, that bond fund very likely bought new higher paying bonds and the internal yield or the coupon rate on those bonds is probably going to be higher. So I think the downside is going to be mitigated to some degree. And depending on who's managing that bond fund, if it's a good solid bond fund that's been around a long time, you know, I have I have my favorites and I have some that I don't even know why they're in the bond market because they can't even keep, not even close to what the indexes do. But again, it just depends on, you know, where you're at. It's a really short question. There's probably a lot more we can talk about as far as options go, but I think the downside's probably maxed out on this or very close to it. Joanna, we appreciate you listening to us in Dove Mountain. And of course, if you have questions of Jeff, 520-780-9059, we'll send you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Jeff, our next question is Frank listening to us in Tucson. And Frank writes, virtually all calculators show I should be okay with my retirement funds and expected spending over the next 25 to 30 years. Now, assuming inflationary times and a possible flat market over the next decade, how do I determine if an annuity might be a solution for any possible future scenario? Are there rules you go by or calculators that would give me some insight as to whether an annuity at a certain cost would be beneficial or not? Well, you know, some annuities do have costs. I don't like variables. Those are the ones that are the most costly. They also are the ones that brokers probably try to sell you more often. I don't know a good calculator that does these Monte Carlo simulations that really takes into account the annuity or the costs themselves. I guess you can add them in if you know what they really are. But uh, you also have to know what the sub-accounts are in those variables or what the indexes are in an index or a safe account. I put everything on a spreadsheet because I don't really like, I mean, you have to factor in, when you're dealing with volatility, you have to use those calculators that factor in random returns on a random year-to-year basis. I mean, that's what the Monte Carlo simulations do that are on those calculators online. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I get people that come in and they've got a plan that just use them. I'm not picking on anybody. We, we hold money at Fidelity, so I'm not going to dog on Fidelity, but they come in with a Fidelity. Fidelity has one of these Monte Carlo things. And let's say they're, they got a million dollars in an account at Fidelity because it's their 401k and they go on this situation where they plug in all the numbers this calculator wants. They come out with this, oh, we've got a 78% chance of, you know, being okay till we're 90. First of all, are you going to die at 90? I mean, most actuaries say that you have a 40% chance of beating 90 nowadays. So that's just if you reach age 65 healthy. So if you're looking at 25 to 30 years, I'm guessing you're probably in that early to mid 60 range, at least maybe older. And uh, you want to make sure you can live to 90 or 100. So can you add annuities? It's really hard because they're really Wall Street based. They're basically just taking indexes and markets. And by the way, they don't always take into account the exact mutual fund historical returns. They take the 
like a growth index or an S&P 500, sometimes benchmarks instead of that exact fund. They take it based on the mix of that fund and, and usually use indexes, which typically overperform most actual funds. So you may might actually come out a little bit lower than what's projected. So if a projection comes in at 78% chance you'll be okay, what about that 22% chance that you're not going to be okay? That if you live too long or if the markets don't participate, you're going to run out of money. So I think the peace of mind that you get with an annuity is, okay, whether there's inflationary times or not, if I can put half my money, let's just say it's a million. I'm just using around numbers. It could be 2 million or 5 million or 10 million or 100,000, whatever. Let's say you put a chunk, let's say say $600,000 into an annuity that will guarantee you 40,000 or so dollars a year forever based on when you turn it on in a a few years, let's say. And you know that when you turn Social Security on, you and your wife are going to make $50,000 and the other $40,000 is going to get you to 90 and you still have another four or $500,000 in the market. Maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars you stick in an interest-bearing account that has you know five or 6% that you can make an extra 10,000. So now you're up to hundred grand a year. And if you think, well, that, that should pay my bill shoot. That gives me a buffer. I mean, we have no house payment. We travel a little bit. We spend 80 or 90, that's hundred. That's more than we need. And we still have, you know, this money in an interest bearing account. And we have uh, $200,000 in the stock market that might go up and down or be fluctuate all over the place, but it's money that you don't need to use. And it's money that you can sit and let grow for the next 10 or 15 years. And maybe it's a, a two, three, four, five hundred thousand $500,000 by then, because you, you know, made some money and that will be money that you can roll out and add to annuities or other guaranteed income streams. So you can actually build in your future increases with inflation. The other thing I want to mention about inflation, I mentioned this before, is I think too many people put too much stock in inflation as if you're really going to have to, if inflation grows by, let's say, 2% a year, that means your cost of living, based on today's cost of living, should double in about 35 years. 36 years. So, I mean, uh, let's say you're 60, you're going to live in the mid-90s. Okay, so your cost of living now is 100. It might be 200,000 when you're 90. Well, if you can still travel and play and do fun things and your discretionary play income is 40,000 a year, then you're really living on 60. So when you're 90, your actual, I have to have this money just to eat and sit around in my house because I just don't have the gumption to go places all the time in my 90s. My kids come to me now. My grandkids come to me now. I can just sit and relax and play pool with my friends and play bridge and relax and do my little exercises and stretch out my yoga, have a nice little place to live. And maybe you're you're not going to be spending 200. You're going to be spending 120. So in other words, you probably have more of a flatline living or lifestyle than one that really increases at two to 4% a year, because in the go-go years, you're probably spending more of your discretionary money. You probably want more now, just like the example I gave earlier, where the brokerage firm that he went to said that, you know, odds are he should spend X and it was 67,000 lower than what, you know, my proposal showed with some guaranteed income streams and some predictable income without taking much risk at all. But in the in the future, they're not going to be doing all that extra fun stuff. So they want to, I think more of a straight line or a very subtle increase is probably more realistic when you factor in inflation. I like to see my clients happy. I like happy people. I like associating with happy people. And I like you to be able to spend your money. Isn't that why you saved it? Or are you just going to die poor so you can make your kids or heirs rich and worry about your money and not touch it because it's in the market and it might go up and it might go down and you're too scared to do anything? That doesn't sound like a happy retirement to me. Predictable, reliable income, guaranteed, secured, insured, makes a lot more sense to me. And it seems to make a lot more sense to my happiest clients. So I like rubbing shoulders with people like that. And I like making people happy by reducing risk 
increasing guaranteed income and give you a lot more peace of mind knowing that you're already ahead of current inflation. And in the future, there's enough buffer that if we needed to, we could use it for inflation. I mean, there might be equity in your home. You could downside use for inflation in the future too. A lot of people do downsize eventually, or they even reverse mortgage their house. I, I am not opposed to reverse mortgages. Some people hate them adamantly, but you know, I've, I've seen them work in the favor of my clients, in my own family, my mother and her uh, second husband, use them to their benefit. And I have no problem looking at the equity that you have in your house as another fallback position to help with inflation down the road. So there's a lot of ways to deal with this, but I think you might be, um, I don't know, maybe overthinking it or putting too much stock in that inflationary pressure on your uh, expenditures 20 years or 30 years from now. Frank, we appreciate you listening to us in Tucson. And of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. And meantime, if you'd like to get in and sit down with Jeff, ask your particular questions to get the answers you need to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement. Again, that number to call 520-780-9059 for your premier retirement roadmap, no cost and no obligation whatsoever. Again, that number 520-780-9059. Why don't you try to schedule that appointment right now before the year's end so you can start off 2024 on the right foot. Again, 520-780-9059. You can also do it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. So, Jeff, the calendar says, of course, Thanksgiving's around the corner and then comes 2024 before you know it. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do right here in November to help us with tax planning before the end of the year. What are some uh, basic tips you can give us? Well, you know, there's certain things that your accountant will tell you about, like, oh, contribute to a Roth. Oh, you make too much money. Maybe you can't. Or, oh, buy municipal bonds. They're tax-free. Or, oh, you don't want to convert your money to a Roth. Uh, you want to take all the deductions you can and not worry about it. Well, my opinion is be a little bit more proactive about your taxes. It might be smarter to pay taxes now at a lower interest rate than it is in the future. It might also be important to take advantage of things that are available to you, some of which are available to you at certain ages and some are available to anybody. And I'll just go over a couple of them. One of my favorite is a DAF, Donor Advice Fund. Not anybody can use that one. Let's say, you know, what, what I find a lot of people with the standard deduction on their tax returns being around $28,000, that a lot of people who might give ten dollars or $15,000 or even $20,000 to a charity, unless you're really unhealthy and have all this other, or a lot of mortgage interest or something that you can write off that can actually help you itemize the deductions, the first $28,000 of your income is going away with a standard deduction anyway. So too often people lose the charitable deduction, it gets buried in there. Well, let's just say you make $150,000 a year and you're giving $15,000 a year to charities. Okay, so over the next five years, you're going to give $75,000. Well, what if you make $150,000 a year and you could write off the next five years of charitable deductions this year? How do you do that? Well, you do a donor advice fund where you put the entire $75,000, maybe it's in savings, maybe it's, you know, something that's really not making a lot of money anyway. You put it in a donor advice fund. It actually can be managed and the management of these is typically, I mean, you can choose a, a more conservative approach, moderate approach, or even an aggressive approach. And then every year you just tell them who to send the money to and they take your orders. You put in donor advice fund, you get to advise where they spend the money. Now, technically, they can send it to other charities if they want to. It's in the agreement, but guess what? They never do it. They never get your business. So again, it's a donor advice fund. You can write up up to half a year just to gross income. So if you're making 150, you can put $75,000 in here. What does that do? Well, the first $28,000 goes to standard deductions. Well, let's just say you have three or $4,000 in something else that you get to write off. So now you have $25,000 that needs to be itemized, but you have a $75,000 deduction. You get an extra $50,000 write-off this year. Oh, and guess what? The next four years, 
you get to take the whole $28,000, saving you probably $10,000 in taxes every year for the next several years. And you save probably maybe close to fifteen dollars or $20,000 this year by doing the donor advised fund. So how would it be to save fifty dollars or $60,000 in taxes over the next five years that you weren't going to send because you didn't use a donor advised fund? Here's another thing. You can also give, if you're 70 years or older, you can gift your RMDs, required minimum distributions, directly to a charity. So let's say you tithe to your church and uh, you tithe $10,000 a year because your income is uh, 100, that's 10%. And your RMDs from um, half a million dollars in uh, uh, an IRA is going to be $20,000. Well, you can say, okay, well, I'm going to give 10000 of it direct from this account to my church. And you can just have the church uh, do a transfer right straight to the church. And guess what? That $20,000 that you had to pull out of your RMD that would normally be called income, and then you hand off the 10000 to the charity, and it gets buried in that standard deduction. Now it doesn't even count as income because you give it directly to the charity. The charity gets the money that you plan you plan to give them. They benefit. You have to take $10,000 out from your IRA that's taxable because you had to take 20. So you have to keep the 10, that's fine. But only 10,000 counts as income. And Jeff, we'll talk more about taxes in our next visit, but we're out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time, but most importantly, thank the fine people here of Tucson for listening to us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.